it sounds strange, but I've never, ever been interested in going into business to make money. And I've never been that interested in making money except to pay the bills at the end of the year. So what I love to do is go in and create things I can be proud of and then hope the figures add up at the end of the year. Sir Richard Branson needs no introduction. One of Britain's most famous businessmen, he founded Virgin Records in the early 1970s. And since then, he's expanded the Virgin Empire to include travel, telecoms, and leisure, including the airline Virgin Atlantic. And after spending 17 years and over a billion dollars building Virgin Galactic, Branson hit a major milestone in private spaceflight when he left the Earth's atmosphere on the world's first commercial spaceflight in July of 2021. He also founded Virgin Unite, a nonprofit foundation devoted to using entrepreneurial ideas to create opportunities for a better world, and co-founded the B Team, a global community of business leaders creating new norms of corporate leadership for the good of the planet. And just recently, he announced his formation of the Planetary Guardians, a collective of leaders in business, politics, and climate activism devoted to securing a safe, just, and healthy future for humanity and the planet. Branson is a member of their advisory council. We spoke about what he's doing to align his own airline with his environmental priorities. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. I began my conversation with Branson the way I like to start a lot of my interviews, by going back to where it all started. Where do you think you got your sense of adventure from? I suspect my mom, as a lot of us will have done. She was determined that we'd be doing things. And so we weren't allowed to watch television, although it's just a little black and white television set. She would push us out on our bikes and tell us, you know, age seven to drive to granny's house on the bike uh, in the pouring rain often. She'd push me out of the car and tell us to make our own way you know, to, to such and such a place, which might be two or three miles away. And she just loved adventure. And she was determined that it would rub off on us. And she was a great believer in having a stand on our own two feet and get the satisfaction from life from doing things. I think today, she most likely would have been arrested for some of these things, <laughs> but somehow we survived and definitely in the process, I think, got a real adventure streak in us. So, and around this time you were diagnosed with dyslexia, correct? So I wasn't actually diagnosed with dyslexia because I don't think the word dyslexia existed when I was young. It may have, but I don't, I, I, I can never remember it being used. I was just seen as, you know, bottom of the class, sat at the back of the class, I had no interest in what was going on in the blackboard because I didn't really understand it and started doing the things that I was interested in doing in my notebooks, planning a national magazine for young people to protest the way we were being taught at school, the things we were being taught at school and things like the Vietnamese War and other atrocities that were going on at the time. And so I left school at 15, 16 to launch this magazine. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized it was dyslexia that had helped me back at school, which was actually a real blessing because I quit <laughs> and did my own thing and got my own education out in the real world. But I also realized that people who were dyslexic, and I met quite a few, were often really good at other things. And perhaps because they couldn't do certain things, they excelled at other things. 
So you got your start in business when you were 16, like you mentioned, when you started Student Magazine. And then things really took off a couple years later with Virgin Records. What was it in those days that really made you interested in music and culture? So I started a record company as a result of frustration, which is the way I've started most of my businesses. So I had a beautiful tape that had been delivered to me by a boy called Mike Oldfield, very haunting, wonderful music called Tubular Bells. And I couldn't get any record companies to release it. So I thought, screw that. We'll set up our own record company. And it was either going to be Slip Disc Records or Virgin Records. But fortunately, we went for Virgin And then, you know, spent many years just looking for bands that were unusual, that other record companies were not wanting to sign, and then trying to make them into big bands. Bands like Culture Club, a singer who was gay and gregarious and wonderful voice, a great performer, great songs. The Rolling Stones, when we signed them, people thought they were too old, and that was 40 years ago. Um, And... And, of course, they're still going very strong. Artists in America like Janet Jackson and Paula Abdul and wonderful bands in the UK, Genesis, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, UB40, Red Red Wine, and reggae. I loved reggae. Artists like Peter Tosh from Bob Marley's band and a wonderful anthem, Legalize It. So do you think that we're in a really different moment culturally these days? Because it seems like the industry has just totally changed. What do you think that means for the culture? So I think there there was a period when people would get their music for free on um, the internet where you saw the demise of the Virgin Megastore around the corner from this hotel in Times Square. And you saw musicians having to struggle to survive. But now things have come back strongly and successful musicians can do extremely well out of downloading their music. And, you know, I would still love to reopen the Virgin Megastore because I think there is demand for black vinyl again. And it was such fun going in and being able to pick up an album sleeve. My son's a musician and he's just produced a 12-inch album and it's just lovely to, you know, feel it. So, yeah, actually just before I came up here, I did go into a couple of empty stores and thought, "Mm, I wonder, can we do it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's so interesting that you pivoted from being a music industry mogul to then running an airline. How did you make that pivot? And what do you think is the secret to reinventing yourself so fully like that? The airline came about because of, again, frustration I was trying to get from Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands to see a lovely lady I'd just fallen in love with. And they decided to cancel the flight. And we were all unloaded and there was no more flights that night and went to the back of the airport, hired a plane and got a blackboard. And as a joke, I wrote Virgin Airlines one way, $39 to the BVI and all the people who got bumped signed up. And we ended up arriving in the Virgin Islands that night. And the next day I rang up Boeing and asked if they had any secondhand 747s for sale. And that, to a large extent, that's how the airline came about. There was also somebody else, coincidentally, that approached us about a business airline around about that same time. But we decided not to do the business airline, just to do more a sort of sexy airline for everybody. So we would offer a first-class product at a business class fair in the front of the plane. And we had 
stand-up bars. We had entertainers flying on our planes for free if they entertained the passengers. It was a fun airline. And we just started with the one plane to Newark. And then after the first year, people liked it. And we got a couple more planes and did Miami and Orlando. And it just slowly grew. You know, there's a big airline industry graveyard. I mean, all the people we were competing with when we started Pan Am, TWA, Air Florida, People Express, Laker. And, I mean, every single one of them have disappeared. And I think Virgin survived because we have a wonderful team of people. And it's that spirit that's kept it going. It's never really made us any money, but it's been a great flagship for Virgin. When we come back, Richard Branson shares his thoughts on outer space and how to change things here on Earth. More in a minute. So... Virgin Galactic has been operating for almost 20 years now. In July 2021, you yourself went to space. And actually, Virgin Galactic just recently had its first commercial passengers to space. What surprised you the most about your journey into space? Well, look, every single moment of that day was the most magical, special day of my life. And I've been lucky. I've had a few magical, special days. But, you know, first of all, We'd built our own spaceship with a wonderful team of people, and it had been 20 years of ups and downs to get to that stage. And I think nobody really believed we could pull it off. And it was absolutely utterly exhilarating. As I was heading out to the runway, my granddaughter pulled me down and whispered in my ear, Papa, you're going to be the first pirate to go into space. And The first pirate? Yeah, I was dumped on an island called Necker Island when I was in my early 20s I was on a pirate ship and these bad pirates dumped me there and I <laughs> my grandkids are sworn to secrecy you know they're the only people who know that I was uh, once a pirate and dumped on this island this and is a this, this is, is a, this is a pretend grand, story that you Papa, told your grandchildren Papa, okay. Papa with his grandchildren. <laughs> got it okay <laughs> and, so anyway and then before before I knew it the roar of the engine and then the silence of space and the unbuckling and just floating in space, looking back at this beautiful earth. It was something which I'd dreamt about since I'd stood outside my little cottage in Chamonix Green when I was a teenager with my parents looking up at the moon. It was a magical day. And now we've started putting people up every month and building more spaceships. And in time, we hope to be able to enable there's so many people who would love to have that experience, and we're looking forward to enabling them to do so. So you probably um, hear the sirens in the background. That's because we're talking in New York around the time of the UN General Assembly. And one of the things that's going to be discussed, hopefully, at the UNGA this week is climate change, which is, I understand, something that you've been thinking about a lot lately. You wrote recently that Earth has already pushed past six out of nine planetary boundaries, which define what experts call the safe operating space for humanity. And you're part of an initiative called Planetary Guardians to try to keep from pushing past more of these guardrails. How have you changed your life and your business in order to address the climate crisis that's facing us all? So I think all of us have got to play our part. And at the Virgin Group, 
we've now sort of laid down a lot of guidelines, which says that any new ventures that we go into must pass certain criteria. And, and what, one of those criteria is we mustn't damage the planet more and we must try to come up with um, things to invest in that are not in any way damaging to the world. And then if we have companies that are affecting the world, then we've got to do everything we can to reduce the negative effect it has on the world. So if you have airlines, we've got to push to get the most environmentally friendly planes we can, make sure that we have the most environmentally friendly fleets we can. In the space business, we've got to try to make sure that the cost of putting somebody to space is no more than the cost of, say, sending somebody from London to New York and back. Do you mean the environmental cost? Environmental costs on one of our planes. We've already got it down to, but I think we can do better than that. If we've got cruise ships, we've got to make sure that they're most environmentally friendly cruise ships. And we've always got to be coming up with better and better ways of reducing our carbon output. So we just generally have to, have got to try to get our own house in order. Yeah. So it sounds like you're very aware of how much flight emissions contribute to climate change. I mean, some experts say it's, you know, up to three or four percent of U.S. climate emissions and, you know, some aviation emissions could more than double by so 2050. Think, yeah, I think that short haul is going to be a lot easier to fix than long haul. Short haul flights ought to be able to be driven by batteries as battery technology improves. Long haul is trickier and that's why we're beginning to experiment with alternative fuels for long haul. And I think a lot of these things will come down to tax breaks. So at the moment, the price of aviation is going to go up and up and up based on heavier and heavier taxes levied on it, which is the right thing to do. But then governments should encourage clean fuels by not having tax on them. Okay. What I've tried to do in my lifetime is set up a number of different organizations to help tackle a number of different major problems in the world. The idea behind the Planetary Guardians was that if you can't monitor the boundaries of the world, and if you don't have scientists making very clear what's happening with each boundary, things are likely to get worse. So there are something like nine or 10 major boundaries in the world that need proper monitoring rainforests, species depredation, climate change. And the idea is that we have planetary guardians who can speak out about these specific areas. We have an annual report on each of these boundaries. And we have a group of older, more experienced people like Mary Robinson and like Robert Redford, like Sylvia L., Jane Goodall, counterbalanced with a younger group of people who can get the messages out. So, as you said, Planetary Guardian is about getting the message out. It's about making sure we're doing this research. It's about issuing reports. But there has already been a lot of reports issued about where we are with climate change. The message is out. People understand what a terrible situation our planet is in. And now, in some ways, it seems the real question is like, okay, well, what are we actually going to do about it? And so... There are not very many people who are as outspoken about the importance of addressing climate change as you are, and yet you also run an airline. So really what I'm asking is, what is Virgin going to do about addressing climate change, given that aviation is one of the leading causes of emissions? What we're doing is 
setting, I mean, first of all, as an airline, so with, with respect, how did you get here today? I mean, <laughs> airline, airlines, airlines exist. And you know, most of the people who come to this conference have flown in on an airline. So I'm not going to give up on trying to better this world because I run an airline. What I'm going to try to do is make sure that that airline is run as efficiently as possible, putting out as few admissions as possible, that we get the youngest planes as possible, so that you know, people like yourself and others who have to use planes can feel that they're using as fuel-efficient a possible plane. We will also work hard to try to look for new technologies where we can actually not have any carbon emissions. So, you know, so I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have a, a sleepless night over something that we set up, you know, 20 years ago. It's a fact of life. We have an airline. We'll do our absolute best to try to make it as carbon-efficient as possible. We, as business leaders, use the business arguments about how much the country would save by moving to clean energy rather than relying on importation of fossil fuels to persuade them. And we had some, some major possible positive breakthroughs. With the planetary boundaries, yes, we know in a general sense what's going on, that things are not necessarily that good, but we don't have a ready methodical approach on each area on an annual basis with scientists reporting, you know, how well have we done over the last 12 months? Now, let me just give one example, the ozone layer. The ozone layer was doing enormous damage to people around the world as, as the hole got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now there's great news on that. And some scientists believed it was related to CFC gases. And there wasn't an organization like Planetary Guardians for them to work with. And, and they took them years and years and years to be listened to. And ultimately, they managed to pull together in Montreal all the nations of the world. And with one voice, the nations all signed to get rid of this particular CFC gas. And the whole is very largely mended. And it can take an organization like the Planetary Guardians or like the Elders or like the B-Team or a combination of, of, of all of them to get positive change. You know, I, I did a, a TV series about my life recently and I said in the TV series, I've never, ever, ever been criticized for starting businesses or making money. And, and, and But the only time the cynicism is when we try to do some good. Huh. And your question slightly, slightly yeah. annoy me because I think... I can feel just the same thing again. If you try, if you try to do something positive, if you try to do something good, you're going to get the cynical questions. And people should not be afraid of trying to do positive things in life because the world needs positive change. Well, I really appreciate you making time to speak with us. We have just a few questions at the very end. We've learned so much about your life and your career and how you've shaped our world. But now we just want to hear a little bit more about some everyday things that shape you. And we call this the last time. So when's the last time you visited London? Yesterday. Because you live there, right? I live in the British Virgin Islands, right. but I was in Morocco where the earthquake had just taken place for two or three days. And I came back via London. And when's the last time you had a new business idea? This morning. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? Uh, should I reopen the Virgin Mega store in, in, in New York? <laughs> When's the last time you flew in a hot air balloon? Two years ago in Kenya. Mm -hmm. When's the last time you went for a bike ride? Um, last week. And when's the last time you listened to your favorite song? 
Um, let me just see. It's got quite a lot of songs. Um, I listened to Can't Get No Satisfaction from the, from the Rolling Stones, which I loved about two days ago. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much for your time. If you want to learn more about Richard Branson's latest initiative called Planetary Guardians, you can read more in his op-ed on time.com, part of our new Time 100 Voices vertical. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>